Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Red Card Ramble. I'm your host, Mark Bajarski, and I know, it's been a while. I've missed you, too. It's mutual. But we're back. And real quick, I just want to explain for our loyal listeners why we've been away for so long. I uh, recently was hired as a head coach. Um, I say recently, that was about six months ago, um, for a high school team in Kansas to uh, coach high school soccer. And, um, of course, with my love of the game and and uh, my limited knowledge of actually how to play it, I decided to go ahead and go for it. And uh, I took the helm of Columbus High School uh, soccer in May. We started our season in August after a long, grueling summer of, of training in the heat. And uh, things started out all right. Um, as a whole, this program hasn't been overly successful in the past, you know, five, ten years. But... Um, I think we did some good. Um, we ended up doubling the win total of that that program, um, and we're in the playoffs right now. So by the time you'll have uh, heard this, we'll have either won and be moving on to the next round, or we'll have lost and our season will be over. So the time commitment there is one big reason why we, uh, we had to take a break from the pod. Um, in addition to that, um, been working other jobs as well. So this has only been a part-time gig. So I uh, haven't had a whole lot of time to podcast, friends. And, uh, and also, we got a puppy. And as any new pet owner can understand, um, training a, a pup in a new environment can almost be a full-time job. Having to watch them, make sure they're not peeing on stuff or, or chewing up the furniture. Um, but he is now almost six months old. His name is Hugo. He will be the official uh, mascot of this podcast. Um, we named him after Le Capitaine, the uh, French goalkeeper for Tottenham, Hugo Lloris. Um, his full name is Hugo Kane Bajarski. I'm guessing you can um, take a, a guess at who the middle name is um, <clears throat> supposed to be. But yeah, so he's, uh, he's a lot more uh, adjusted into this environment now. He's actually put away for the moment so he doesn't bark because uh, he doesn't like to be left out of the conversation. So... Um, yeah, so all those factors kind of contributed to us not being able to record, um, taking some time away, and uh, you know sometimes we just you know gotta take some time off, gotta take this this beautiful thing away from you so you can appreciate it even more when it's gone. But you've been patient, and so we are back, and boy do we have a lot to talk about today. There have been lots of goals, there have been lots of managers getting sacked. The U.S. has failed to qualify for a World Cup for the first time in 30-plus years. We will be talking about that on today's show. Um, MLS is starting into the postseason. Um, yesterday was Sunday, I guess, was decision day. And uh, there's plenty to talk about from around Europe as well. So sit tight. Let's, uh, let's just get comfortable. And let's talk about some soccer. How about it? <laughs> And we're back. Now, let's talk about a league that we haven't really talked much about over the course of the first few episodes of the pod, and that's the MLS. Major League Soccer, much maligned by uh, international soccer fans, as well as some uh, U.S. men's national team fans who feel the league isn't producing the level 
of talent that is needed for the U.S. to progress on a national stage. Now, that is a conversation for later in the show, but MLS regular season is over. We have our Supporters' Shield winners, Toronto FC. We have our Open Cup winners, Sporting Kansas City, who win it for a record fourth time. Um, And then we have MLS Cup, the playoffs. And boy, the last day of the season... Um, correctly named Decision Day uh, because it often comes down to the last day of the season to see who is in and who is not and what seed they're going in. It was crazy. There was a lot of drama. I watched um, closely the Sporting Kansas City uh, Real Salt Lake game, um, Real Salt Lake hoping for a win um, and to get a little bit of help from around the uh, league. They needed a loss by Dallas um, or a tie um, from Dallas and from San Jose in order to make the playoffs. And Sporting KC needed a win in order to get a home game, which is uh, very important because they have lost only once this season at home and have in the last two seasons lost in the first round of the playoffs um, because they've been on the road, um, both to, to Seattle and to Portland, respectively. So it was a big deal for this game. Um, so we'll start with Sporting Kansas City RSL, and we'll move around the league and kind of give an overview of, of what happened around Decision Day, who were the winners, who were the losers, and uh, who set themselves up best for the MLS Cup playoffs. So first, Sporting KC versus RSL. Like I said, Sporting come into the game needing a win in order to uh, secure a home playoff game. Um, RSL need a win and a little bit of help in order to get into the playoffs altogether. The, uh, all the games kicked off at the exact same time. Um, this one was played in um, Salt Lake. And let's just say Sporting didn't really seem all that up for it. Um, Real come out, score very early. Um, to take the lead, put Sporting on the back heel, um, and didn't look like slowing up. Score again in the first half. Um, second half was mostly just defending Sporting steal a goal late, but uh, it's too late for them to mount any sort of comeback and RSL win. So you think, hey, they did it. They did exactly what they needed to do. But the others didn't hold up their end of the bargain. Uh, San Jose needed to uh, draw or lose, as did FC Dallas, and both of them ended up winning their games. San Jose uh, dramatically beating uh, Minnesota United um, off a, a Wando assist. Um, he scored the first, he assisted the second, um, a late winner for San Jose, who do make the playoffs as a result of their win. Um, FC Dallas destroying the LA Galaxy. Um, but it is not enough as they also needed help in order to jump into the playoffs after their late season collapse of epic proportions. If you, uh, if you haven't been following MLS very closely, um, just go back and take a look at their, uh, their uh, win-loss record throughout the season and just watch it nosedive about halfway through. Um, they went on, a, I believe, a 10 or so um, losing stretch where um, they couldn't they couldn't buy a goal or a win so um, this team that was looking like uh, maybe a playoff favorite didn't make the playoffs and uh, there's a lot of questions surrounding Dallas and their coach and what should be changed if anything to make sure that this doesn't happen again now we'll head to the uh, the Eastern Conference um, 
where Toronto FC um, secure a point um, at Atlanta, where they also set the attendance record Atlanta United did in their inaugural season in the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium, a record of nearly 72,000 in attendance. Uh, And, I mean, Atlanta United have to be one of the stories of the season, an expansion team that's done about as well as any expansion team has in history, maybe other than the Chicago Fire winning MLS Cup in their first season but since then it's not been good for expansion teams and uh, Atlanta obviously didn't seem to get the memo Um, this has been a team that has been uh, just electric week in week out they're putting up uh, just enormous amounts of goals Joseph Martinez Miguel Almiron um, are probably uh, one of the most deadly partnerships in the league and uh, that was without Joseph Martinez for eight weeks in the middle of the season, um, had a massive injury and was sidelined for a good while. And this team, it's scary to think how good um, they are. But uh, if they'd had him throughout the season, I think we're to, I think we're looking at them at maybe a one seed, if not just a two seed. Um, but yeah, so this game, um, Toronto come in, Supporter Shield winners, having the best regular season record uh, in the league. They are looking to uh, break the all-time points record for a season. All they need is a point to do so. They get it. Um, and so they uh, they now uh, finish with the best regular season point total of any team in MLS history at 69 points. Um, Atlanta are unable to get the win they needed to jump NYCFC for the second place um, in the Eastern Conference, but they sit very comfortably in uh, third, I believe, let me double-check that. Fourth, Chicago Fire uh, sit in third. Toronto are the one seed. NYCFC are the second. Um, and then you've got Columbus Crew and New York Red Bulls finishing out the Eastern Conference playoff table. Um, and then in the West, Portland, um, with a win over Seattle, uh, they jump into uh, – or sorry, a win over uh, Vancouver, jump into the first seed in the Western Conference um, Seattle winning as well, um, though they will be the second seed. They will do so without their talisman scorer, Clint Dempsey, who uh, was controversially sent off by the VAR for an apparent elbow to the face of an opponent. So they will be without, without him for the first leg of the playoffs. Vancouver, who were in first coming into the day, dropped to the third seed. Houston Dynamo leap over Sporting Kansas City. Um, to be in the fourth place spot, Sporting KC take fifth, and San Jose squeak in to the sixth place spot. So, your MLS Cup playoffs look like this. Portland and Seattle will await the uh, winners of the knockout rounds. Um, Portland will get the lowest seed to come through. Seattle will get the highest seed. Um, In the knockout round, we have Vancouver Whitecaps against San Jose. That game will take place on October 25th at 10.30 Eastern Time. You can watch that on Unimas or uh, NBC Sports. Um, The second game will be Houston Dynamo um, and Sporting KC. Sporting will have to go on the road again, which is exactly what they wanted to avoid to their bitter rivals, Houston Dynamo. and they will play on the 26th at 9.30 Eastern, available on Unimas and Fox Sports KC. Um, so, depending on who wins those games, we will have a uh, pretty interesting second round of uh, Western Conference playoffs. Um, will we have a Cascadia rivalry? Will we see Sporting avenge one of their two uh, playoff losses 
to Portland or Seattle? Um, will Houston or Vancouver um, or San Jose make a statement? Who knows? Eastern Conference now. Toronto FC and NYC FC um, will take the one and two spots, awaiting the um, lowest seed for Toronto and the highest seed for New York. Uh, for the knockout rounds, we have uh, Chicago Fire um, playing NY at Red Bull. Um, and we have Atlanta United hosting Columbus Crew. Now, that should be an interesting game. Um, and let me, if you're unaware of what's going on in MLS right now, uh, there's some controversy surrounding Columbus Crew, and uh, we may get into this a little more later, but uh, Columbus Crew's owner, um, a man by the name of Anthony Precourt, is moving, or at least threatening to move, uh, the Columbus Crew to Austin, Texas. Uh, now, there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, obviously, they this has never happened in the MLS before, um, though it has happened in lower leagues in the past in the United States. Um, but he's threatening to move the team to Austin. Now, Columbus are one of the founding members of, of MLS, and they had the first soccer-specific stadium in the country. So his arguments are that the stadium is not big enough, it doesn't have all the fancy amenities that allow for them to make um, the highest amount of match day revenue as compared to some of their rivals around the league. And uh, more than anything, I think he just wants to move the team to Texas for money reasons. Um, There were some sketchy things in some of his uh, papers when he bought the team from the Hunt family um, about not moving the team unless, you know, there's a little caveat, unless it's to Austin, Texas. So it sounds like this was the plan all along. Crew fans are obviously upset. This is their team. Um, yeah, the stadium holds about 19,000, which is smaller than most of the soccer-specific stadiums that have been built um, since it was built. Um, but it's their stadium. It's their team. You know, if you follow the national team at all, Columbus is kind of the stronghold for the national team. This is the home of Dos Acero. This is uh, where we go when we need a win. Um, it hosted, I believe, the um, Honduras game um, before the heck started. That was kind of a win in, in your end situation. Um, the United States back against the wall needed the win, so they went to Columbus. So you have to feel for the crew fans. Um, this is a team that's getting its franchise stolen from them because of what? A desire to make more money. Um, and what's ironic about the whole situation is Austin um, didn't apply for an expansion bid in this last round, uh, which you would think if um, if they really wanted an MLS franchise, you would do. But this is where it gets a little bit sketchy is you know with all the... The paperwork that Precourt um, filled out, with that little caveat about not moving the team except to Austin, them not submitting a bid. It sounds like this has been in the works for a lot longer than Precourt would like you to think. And uh, honestly, it's just kind of disgusting. Um, Austin is a team that knows what it feels like to lose um, a professional soccer team. Um, they had the Aztecs there who moved... Um, I think, to the West Coast in order to do exactly that, to make more revenue, um, because Austin at the time was not a soccer city. Now, Austin is now. Um, it's it's definitely grown in popularity. It's south by southwest um, in Austin city limits. 
Um, there have been massive um, you know, pushes to bring an MLS team, to get a soccer team there. But uh, is moving a uh, especially loyal franchise from Columbus to your city the way you want to do it? Who knows if, uh, if all the fans in, in Austin are on board with this or if they just don't care. They just want a soccer team. It's hard to argue with that, but keep your uh, keep your eyes peeled for developments on this story. If you are passionate about U.S. soccer, if you're passionate about the MLS, um, there are ways to get involved. We'll put those on the Twitter page, um, hashtag Save the Crew. Um, but there's a website as well that I believe you can uh, sign a petition, and um, there will be demonstrations all over the place. I'm sure in the playoffs. If you're planning on going to games, make a sign something. Um, just let them know that this isn't how we want U.S. soccer um, or soccer in the United States more. Um, we don't. That's not how we want it run. We don't want corporate giants coming in, deciding that this isn't really the most profitable market, and then moving teams out. Um, so um, with Atlanta being a new franchise um, and a record-setting uh, franchise at that, um, it should be an interesting matchup between Atlanta and Columbus um, in the playoffs. Anything can happen. So I highly suggest watching this one. This one will be available on the 26th of October at 7 Eastern on ESPN2. Um, And then the Chicago Fire and Red Bull game will be on the 25th at 8.30 Eastern on FS1. So if you get the chance, watch these games, support MLS. Um, If you don't have a team, you know, this may be the opportunity for you to find one. Maybe you'll see something um, on the field, in the stands, that strikes a chord with you. Um, and I highly recommend it. As a Sporting KC fan myself, um, I've had the opportunity over the um, last couple of months to go to a few sporting games. It's incredible. The atmosphere is incredible. Uh, the team has such a history and a culture of winning. Um, it's definitely worth being a fan of the MLS. Um, some of you may be fairly new to soccer and, and you're on the European band, bandwagon, and I understand I'm a massive Tottenham fan as well. But uh, MLS is a great league. It's competitive, it's fun, and it's local. So rather than having to watch on the TV every week, you can go to these games. Um, you can go and watch these players in person, um, and I highly recommend it. So what do we think? Prediction time. For the MLS playoff pictures, we'll start in the East. Chicago Fire versus the Red Bull. This one I think is an easy pick. Chicago Fire, um, they they've been in great form all season. Um, they have your Golden Boot winner. Um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name. Uh, he came from uh, Liga Warsaw at the beginning of the season. He's been on fire, um, and <laughs> no pun intended. Um, but he's been in great goal-scoring goal form. Uh, the Fire have really turned it around, last season being one of the worst in the MLS. It's now being a three-seed and, at times, being near the top of the Eastern Conference. So um, New York have not been playing well. Um, they really took a nosedive in the second half of the season. They were lucky to make it into the playoffs. And uh, I think Chicago Fire win this comfortably to, to nothing. Now, to the other game in the knockout round, we have Atlanta United versus the Crew. Um, this one is tough. Atlanta are just a team that, if you're not careful, they'll score five or six past you. Just ask the New England Revolution. They're 7-0 uh, drubbing at the hands of Atlanta 
at home, much less, um, is testament to how uh, Tata Martino has this team playing. They're exciting. They're high energy. Joseph Martinez, Miguel Almiron can score on you literally at will. Um, and I just, I honestly, coming into the playoffs, coming into decision day, I've said it, Atlanta is not the team I would want to face in the playoffs. They don't have a lot of experience, but if you give them the chance, they're going to put it away. I think this is going to be too much for a crew team that probably has a lot of other things on their mind, a lot of distractions. Um, Unfortunately um, for Columbus, I think Atlanta win this one uh, by a pretty hefty score, 3-1, maybe even more. So that means we would have a Toronto versus Atlanta um, and then matchup, and then NYCFC versus Chicago, um, and that I don't know about you guys is uh, very very intriguing. But we'll save those um, predictions for after this first round of playoffs to see whether I was right or wrong, and to give those predictions uh, for the next round. So moving to the Western Conference, we have Vancouver Whitecaps versus the San Jose Earthquakes. Uh, Whitecaps. They're a defend-first counter kind of team. San Jose obviously have um, Juan Dolowski, who, with his goal yesterday, um, puts him as the second all-time leading scorer in MLS. And uh, they've got an exciting young group of players, which is not something you would expect from San San Jose, who have historically not um, done a lot with their academy. But uh, they have an exciting team. They got... You know, the results they needed to down the stretch. Some, I mean, all too often, MLS Cup playoffs is about who is catching form at the right time. The last two winners of MLS Cup have been six seeds who have gone on to uh, to win the Cup in pretty dramatic fashion, that being Portland two years ago, Seattle last season. So can, can the Earthquakes be that team this season? I don't think so. I think Vancouver are going to be too much for them defensively. Um, and I think this one grinds to a one nothing win for Vancouver. It'll be heartbreak for San Jose, but uh, just getting into the playoffs on such a crazy set of events is, uh, I think, victory enough, although I'm sure they won't see it that way. The next one, Houston Dynamo versus Sporting Kansas City. This one's tough. Obviously, I'm a Sporting Kansas City fan, but I'm realistic. We've now played Houston um, twice in the last... Two weeks. This will be the third time in as many weeks that we'll have uh, had to face Houston. We went on the road to Houston and we lost, I think, 3 1. Um, an own goal from Eric Palmer Brown um, didn't help things, but it certainly wasn't all his fault. Sporting just have not been able to score consistently down the stretch. And what they've hung their hat on all season is being a defensive. Um, defensive side being very stable having the likes of Ico Parra and Matt Beasler and uh, honestly MLS keeper of the year has to be Tim Melia who is currently injured and not sure if he'll be back in time for this game or not which if he isn't is a major major uh, downer for Sporting Kansas City but Sporting have to go on the road to Houston where they lost 3-1 then they came to Kansas City um, the next week and uh, ground out a nil-nil draw so, I don't know. I think, based on form, Houston are in better form. Um, they're playing at home, sporting not in great form. It hurts, but I think I have to go Houston 2-1. I think this game will be close. 
But I think it's another heartbreak in the playoffs for Sporting, who really, I think, are suffering from a, a, miss, a missing Dom Dwyer. Um, now, I think the deal overall will be good for Sporting, as I've said before, but um, they certainly could use a proven goal scorer. Diego Rubio has done an okay job filling in, but he is not the answer. Then they haven't been getting goals from elsewhere like they should be. Daniel Shalloy has uh, has shown a propensity for scoring in big moments, but um, hasn't been consistent. And, and neither has Latif Blessing or uh, Jerso Fernandez. So, yeah, I think this one it goes to Houston. So that means we would have Portland-Vancouver in another Cascadia Derby and then Houston versus Seattle. So that is our MLS playoff picture. Those are my predictions. Um, Stay tuned. Let's see what happens. Watch as many of these games as you can. Support the MLS. And uh, let's see um, next week whether I was right or wrong. All right, so we're going to move on here. Um, After the break, uh, we will talk European soccer. We'll catch up on the Champions League, on the Premier League, who's winning, who's losing, who's set themselves up um, for a tough um, Christmas break, quote-unquote, a long stretch of games around the holiday season, and uh, who desperately need to reinforce. So stay tight. All right, next up, we're going to be talking the Premier League. Now, the last show you guys would have heard was our uh, second part of the Premier League preview show. So it's uh, it's been a while, um, about eight weeks um, since we last recorded. And um, boy, have uh, there have been some interesting uh, developments in the league since then. First off, we want to talk about... Um, who is uh, who has fired some managers? Um, as of recording, um, Frank DeBoer at Crystal Palace. I know this happened a long time ago, so um, and it was honestly uh, not a surprise. Um, Frank DeBoer was an interesting hire. He has not really had success anywhere he's been, so naturally Crystal Palace would uh, bring him in to fix things. And uh, yeah, not so surprisingly, didn't work. He didn't win a game. He didn't score a goal um, in his uh, time as the skipper of Crystal Palace. So they fire him after, I think, just four games. And uh, they bring in old Grandpa Roy Hodgson, former manager of England um, and Liverpool. Bring him in um, because nothing nothing says uh, steady hands like uh, old Roy. And to his credit... They have won a game now against defending champions Chelsea, and uh, they have scored a few goals. So if you're just judging it based on the predecessor, he's a smashing success. Um, But things are not looking great for Crystal Palace. Um, They currently are sitting bottom of the league in the relegation zone on three points, the one win at Chelsea, eight losses, and uh, they have a negative 17 goal difference. So... Um, stuff's not looking great, um, and who knows if Roy will make it through the season either. Uh, could we see Big Sam come back, save him again? Who knows? Next, um, we've got, as of today, as of uh, Monday, um, we have had our second manager sacking of the season. 
That is Ronald Koeman at Everton. Whew. We're going to take a minute to talk about Everton because uh, producer Josh Peters is a Toffees fan and has been saying Koeman out for a while now, and it's finally happened. Congratulations, Josh. Koeman is gone. Um, what can we say? Um, things looked bright uh, at the end of last season. Um, he had a transfer window to bring in um, a lot of big names. Um, obviously, you bring in Wayne Rooney back to his boyhood club. Um, you go out, you get Gilfie Sigurdsson, um, and then you go out and get an exciting young prospect out of Ajax, Davy Klassen, um, and you think, wow, this team could actually do something. And then you match that with young talent like Tom Davies and Calvert-Lewin. Um, and you just got this sense that Everton were going to, if not break the barrier of the like top seven, um, you know, they finished around seventh last season. You thought maybe they're at least going to finish there, if not maybe even break in the five or six spot. And that has just not been the way it's gone this season. Um, surprisingly, you know, bringing in three number tens um, in the off season doesn't uh, doesn't just magically give you more goals um, when you probably should have gone out and replaced Romelu Lukaku, um, your leading goal scorer, and uh, probably gotten someone uh, at the back. You know, and they went out and got Jordan Pickford to be fair, uh, who I think will be a great keeper for them down the down the road. But he just doesn't have much in front of him right now. Uh, Michael Keane is, I think, going to be a decent signing in the long run. But right now, Ashley Williams is not playing well. He's causing more problems than he's solving. And uh, there's just, what else do you do? You needed to go out. You probably needed to strengthen that back line. You can never have too many center backs. Um, and they just haven't. That, I think, has been the Achilles heel for this team. They can't stop anyone from scoring. And uh, honestly, they haven't necessarily struggled to score um, themselves. I mean, Rooney has um, banged in a few, and uh, Calvert-Lewin has looked um, at least dangerous, but they're just not able to keep people from scoring, as Arsenal proved um, the game that would prove to be Ronald's last and his undoing, Arsenal 5, and uh, Everton 2 just... Just proves this team was not focused on getting past the hurdle uh, for whatever reason. I think um, that comes down to Kuman. Um, I think we all knew um, Ronnie thought that this was just a stepping stone uh, to maybe a bigger club. Um, that he was going to be able to come in, um, you know, make Everton competitive against the big six, maybe finish above that uh, elusive seventh spot into five or six, um, and maybe challenge for a top four spot, get an offer like David Moyes, go coach Manchester United or Chelsea or something like that. And that just wasn't the case. Um, you have to take it seriously. You can't be looking forward. You have to be focused in the moment. And I just don't think he was. So you can't just, you know, come in and expect to turn that, that team around um, in a season and then move on. Everton are a project. They are a team that they have um, some good pieces in place. They have a very dedicated and loyal fan base. They've now got more money than they've probably ever had. 
but they need love. They need someone who genuinely wants to be there, who wants to see this project to fruition. And uh, honestly, they remind me a lot of Tottenham in in more ways than just um, that I'm a Tottenham fan and um, and wanting to kind of gloat about how well we've done. Um, I mean, if you've been watching the Premier League long enough, you'll know Tottenham struggled for a long time. I mean, they've, they've always been a Premier League team, but not always a very good one. And especially prior to Maurizio Pochettino coming in, you know, you had the uh, uh, Tim Shearwood era, the AVB era, the Harry Redknapp era. Now, Redknapp was very successful at Tottenham, um, but his predecessor or his uh, his successors were not, and that led to midseason sackings and manager turnover, and finally, finally, Daniel Levy said, "Enough is enough. We're going to come in. We're going to bring in the right guy, um, who has a proven track record, who wants to be in the Premier League, who wants to accept a a struggling team." and make them something great. Someone who has an idea of what they want to do, how they're going to do it, and has no problem doing whatever he needs to to get to that point. And that was what Poch did. You know, he he came in, he ruffled feathers, he, he kicked out guys who have been at the club for a long time as far as players who didn't buy in. He brought in the guys he wanted, and he promoted youth guys who were hungry, who wanted a chance, who were willing to do whatever it took to get that chance. And, I mean, look at us now. And I think that is there for Everton. I think they have that potential. They just need a manager who wants to be at Everton, who wants to stay for the long haul, to see them through difficult times, to bring in the right personnel, and I think they can do it. But they have to be patient. Obviously, this season... um, isn't going to produce much for you. Um, the biggest, the biggest thing now is just not get relegated because right now they're sitting in the 18th spot in the relegation zone, um, one point above Bournemouth in the 19th spot. Um, but there are quite a few teams. Um, you know, 13 through 20 are all separated by well, let's say uh, 13 through 19 because Crystal Palace is a disaster. Um, are separated by only a couple of points. So. Um, I don't think they're going to get relegated, but if they don't figure something out fast, um, I look at teams like uh, um, West Brom and Leicester and Swansea, who, um, especially Swansea last year, were awful, but uh, they're playing much better now. And you've got the two newly promoted sides, Huddersfield and Brighton, who are upsetting you know, big teams and playing very well. And I just don't know if you start down this slide as Everton, I don't know that you can pull yourself out in time. So find somebody like Big Sam, <laughs> get yourself into a, a stable position, be on the lookout, be putting out feelers, figure out who's going to be the next in line, who's going to to be your Pochettino. And I think this team can turn it around, but this season's going to be difficult. So sorry, Josh, uh, I feel for you. Um, be patient. <laughs> it's worth it. Um, but I'd be interested to hear who you guys think will be the uh, the next manager. Um, you know, obviously some big names. Carlo Ancelotti's out there. Um, does he come in? But is he the kind of guy who's going to stay for the long haul? Um, you know, hey, um, you never know. 
So let me know on social media, on Twitter, um, at RedCardRamble, um, who you think is going to be the next manager of Everton. Um, who do you want to see in the future? Who, who do you think is the right man for the job? Let me know on Twitter, and uh, we'll see what happens. Moving on, we are going to talk Man City. Wow. Um, it pains me to say it. I don't like Manchester City at all. But, gosh, they're just mowing people over. <laughs> I mean, this is a team that scored um, at least three, if not four or five, in every game they've played this season. They're embarrassing people. Um, we joked at Pep's expense all offseason about spending $150 million on on. Um, outside backs and it's working they're on fire Leroy Sané has has proven he can um, be a pacey and clinical threat out wide Gabriel Jesus continues to impress obviously you've got Sergio Aguero there who is the leader of that team Um, and then you've got guys who stepped in um, like uh, Bernardo Silva and um, Kyle Walker and um, Danilo and some of those guys who stepped into open roles and really improved that team. They have, as of right now, a five-point lead on second place, second and third place, and uh, they don't show any signs of of slowing down. So who knows if anybody can catch them, who's going to be the first team to knock them off? Um, I don't know. I just don't. But um, the two behind them, Manchester United, obviously suffering their first loss of the season this week against Huddersfield, um, sit at 20 points, as do Tottenham, who, uh, who had a convincing win 4-1 over Liverpool, now sit on 20, only separated by goal difference. And uh, they play each other next week, so we'll see. Winner goes to second place. So, um, yeah, moving on. We'll talk about Spurs for a little bit since uh, this is my podcast and I'm a Spurs fan. So let's talk about Tottenham. Tottenham sit in third, like I said, on 20 points. They've been less than convincing at home um, prior to this week. Um, Leaving games late, they let Burnley come back and and pull out a draw. They uh, let Swansea draw them at home. Just didn't seem like a place they were comfortable playing. All those Wembley hoodoo nonsense uh, claims seem to maybe have some validity. And then they come out this week and they trounce Liverpool. 4-1, wasn't close. They scored early, they scored often, they were clinical, and Liverpool just didn't have an answer. In fact, they pulled off one of their center backs 30 minutes into the game because he was getting burned time after time. Harry Kane, not the fastest guy in the Premier League, uh, made him look like a child. Um, and... That game proved, I think, that Tottenham are legitimate title contenders, that uh, Wembley is um, not a death sentence for their title hopes, that they can win there, that they can be competitive there. Um, So we'll see. Um, Next up, they do have Manchester United. That'll be the first big, big test of the season. Um, Sorry, actually, it'll be the second um, after losing to Chelsea, but I've chosen to forget that game. Um, This is... This is the title race already coming down to, you know, um, these kinds of games this early in the season. Um, you know, Tottenham have missed it by a couple of points in the last couple of seasons, and it's because we didn't win these games when we needed to. So this will be big. If Spurs can beat Man United, I think they they put themselves not only second in the table, um, 
but they announced themselves as the true title contenders for the season. So uh, this week, I think it's on Sunday, it'll be an interesting game. Stay tuned. Both teams have midweek games. Um, So uh, who knows? My prediction, I think Tottenham win it. I think Man United missing Pogba. They've got Phil Jones out hurt now. Lindelof has not looked um, great in the Premier League so far. He was uh, responsible for at least one of those Huddersfield goals. Um, and, you know, yeah, they can score, but Jose has proven um, that sometimes he's not really all that concerned with scoring. Um, going nil-nil um, with with Liverpool, um, I think he, who knows, maybe he's playing the long game, but I think he's proven that uh, that fast powerful start was maybe um, a little flattering um, and maybe not true to what Man United are going to be this season. Um, So we'll see. Next up, Champions League. And you know exactly where I'm going with this. Tottenham go to the Bernabeu to the two-time defending champions, Real Madrid. They get their draw. Honestly, both teams had chances to win that game. It wouldn't have – I think a a draw was a fair result, but Tottenham had multiple chances that could have and probably should have gone in. Um, And then, obviously, it took massive saves on both sides from Kaylor Navas and Hugo um, to prevent um, winners on both sides. Hugo with a point-blank leg save um, from a Kareem Benzema header. And then even earlier on, first couple minutes of the game, Ronaldo's shot gets parried wide and falls right to Benzema, who drags it wide. I mean, this game could have been out of hand for both sides. So I think a draw is fair. I think Tottenham announced to the world that uh, although we haven't always been very successful in the Champions League, we're taking it serious this year, and they're going to come out. They're going to come out swinging. Um, They beat Dortmund 3-1 at home. They went to Cyprus and beat... Opal, um, and in convincing fashion, Hurricane hat trick, and then they go to the Bernabeu and get a draw. I think that's all you need. Um, so now Real have to come to Wembley, which is not going to be an easy place to play. Um, we have to go to Dortmund, and then Opal have to come to Wembley as well. So um, we'll see how the rest of that group, the group of death, um, pans out, but I think Tottenham have put themselves in a great position um, to make it out of this group, and I think probably at the expense of Dortmund. So, um, other news from around the Champions League: England's back, man. There's been this conversation over the last couple seasons. Um, you know, should England lose one of their automatic qualifying spots? Um, for the Champions League because English teams just have not been very competitive over the last couple seasons. Um, you know, you, you look at Tottenham last season getting knocked out in the group. Uh, you know, Arsenal round of 16 lose to Bayern. It's you know just kind of written in the stars. And then uh, Man City, Chelsea, Man United have all just underperformed and underwhelmed um, throughout the last couple seasons. But so far, every English team is undefeated. Every English team is on top of their group. That includes Tottenham, who I believe are on top of the group on goal difference. Um, and they're all looking good. Um, now, as the Premier League continues to grind on, as some of these other competitions like the League Cup and the FA Cup continue um, and really kick off for some of these teams, um, can they balance them? Um, I think 
depth is an issue for some sides. And I obviously, you know, teams like La Liga, uh, or, or sorry, um, leagues like La Liga and Serie A, um, teams like Juventus and Barcelona and Real can afford to field somewhat of a B team against some of their league opponents because they know that their quality is just so much greater. Where in the Premier League, you can't do that. So, you know, if you're not absolutely 100% every single game in the Premier League, you're going to drop points. And then you have to go in on a short week um, and go to places like the Bernabeu against Real Madrid and, on tired legs and have to go and get a result. So it's yet to be seen whether this can continue. But at least so far, English teams have sh- have shown that this is their year. They're going to take it seriously. And uh, it's not going to be a repeat of the past where it's just going to kind of roll over and let, uh, let La Liga and Serie A have their way with the Champions League. So it'll be exciting to see what happens. But at least so far, um, yeah, England's back, man. So next up, this is the one you're all waiting for. I'm going to react to the U.S. men's national team losing to Trinidad and Tobago, not qualifying for the World Cup. What happened? What does this mean? Where do we go from here? All of those questions and more we'll answer in the next segment. So stay tuned. Um, maybe take um, <laughs> maybe a, a, a relaxing um you know, hot shower or whatever it is, drink some chamomile tea, just just calm down a little bit. I'll do the same because I think this is going to get real, um, real fast. And uh, yeah, <sighs> buckle up. All right, here we go. The big one, the one we've all been waiting for and dreading somewhat simultaneously. The U.S. men's national team. Last game of the Hex, coming off a big win in Orlando against Panama. Everything seemed to be going great. We uh, we scored four. We were on top of the world. Christian Pulisic looked like the savior of American soccer that everybody believes that he will be. And uh, all we needed going into this Trinidad and Tobago game was a draw. That's it. A draw against Trinidad and Tobago, a team who had only won one game in the hex up to this point, who had gone through multiple managers over the course of qualification, and were basically experimenting with a lineup. This new coach wanted to field young players to see what he's going to be dealing with for the next qualification cycle. So we were essentially playing a Trinidad and Tobago B team. Easy, right? All we need is a draw. We go there. Field conditions are bad. It's always going to be a hostile environment. But we were going to get the tie. If not the win. It was just, it was destiny. Or so we thought. First off, I mean, what what can you do? Ball gets crossed in. Omar Gonzalez hardly in good defensive positioning, facing basically his own goal, just swipes a foot at the ball, gets a hold of it, and to be fair, uh, finishes upper 90, um, 
pretty pretty uh, clinical finishing, really. Uh, unfortunately, um, he puts it into the back of his own net. Tim Howard out of position, can't get there. U.S. down, one nothing. Not exactly how we scripted it. The game progresses. It's very clear that the U.S. is not up for it. We don't have possession for long spells. We basically don't have a midfield. Michael Bradley is is uh, tasked with both defending in front of the back four and somehow simultaneously uh, linking play to what can only be considered basically a top five. You know, you've got Josie and Wood and Pulisic and Nagby and Ariola all pushed forward out of the midfield saying, we're just going to wait up here, overload that back uh, four of TNT, and we're going to get our goal. But what happened is TNT bunkered, and they played off the counter, and it worked. And honestly, for the entire second half of the game, they dominated possession. They didn't even need to bunker. We weren't pressing the ball. We weren't tracking our runners. We let them have space out wide, and we let them fire in crosses all night. And one of those crosses ended up being a shot from Alvin Jones, which... Say what you will, um, cross or no cross or shot, Tim Howard has to save that. Now, Everton fans out there will point to this and say, well, this is the kind of shot that Tim Howard is accustomed to giving up. In the Premier League with Everton, this is the kind of shot that plagued Tim Howard. It's a shot that, as a keeper, tests your reactions, your your footing, your positioning, and especially in a World Cup qualifying game against an inferior opponent, I, I can understand Tim Howard not thinking that this shot is going to be, one, that it's going to be a shot, two, that it's going to be anywhere near his goal. But he wasn't in good position, he was flat-footed, and we see a great shot, if it was a shot. I mean, just an incredible shot. Opposite side, to the far post, just buries it in the side netting. And we're stunned. First half, we're down 2 nothing. And now, for some of you, this is just um, some PTSD uh, that we don't really need to go into. But I think it's important now that we've had a couple of weeks to, to recover. That we go back and we look at the game then highlight some of the difficulties, some of the, some of the honestly just pathetic performances. Obviously, the scapegoat is going to be Omar Gonzalez, and, and for good reason. Um, he hasn't played well in a U.S. jersey for a long time, yet for some reason Bruce Arena kept putting him in. Um, he was at fault for an own goal tonight and almost gave away a penalty just minutes later. I mean, we're talking about the U.S. going down 2-0 in the span of literally two minutes. Why he started this game, why he started any of these qualifying games is is a mystery. Obviously, I think if John Brooks isn't hurt, he's going to be starting in there, and you have to think then Jeff Cameron gets to start. But for whatever reason, a healthy Jeff Cameron, obviously healthy enough to be called into camp, 
doesn't see the field for this game, a must-win, at least a must-high game. And Bruce Arena doesn't put him in. He puts Omar in, who is constantly holding people onside. And then in this game, obviously had the worst game he's probably ever played. And then you've got Tim Howard, who we've we've already talked about a little bit, out of position, doesn't seem to have the reactions that he once did. Tim is an absolute legend. Now let's not forget this. The Belgium game will go down as the greatest U.S. men's national team goalkeeping performance of all time, as it should. But that was three years ago. And that Tim Howard is not the Tim Howard that took the field at Trinidad and Tobago. And he is as much at fault for both goals as Omar Gonzalez is for the first. And then you've got Michael Bradley. Now, Michael Bradley, uh, he comes under such unfair criticism um, as he was played out of position by Klinsman for, I mean, the last basically four years, um, constantly being changed. His, his task, his role um, is just... Sometimes it's be a number 10, Michael. Sometimes it's, you know, sit deep, be a six, hold, you know, the ball up, come deep, even deep, uh, even as deep as the center backs and, and link up play. And sometimes it's, it's a, it's a little bit of both. So I think he gets unfair criticism because I mean, how, I mean, you and I, we go into our workplace, if we're being told two different things and sometimes being told both, we're not always going to succeed in those roles. So a lot of Michael Bradley's issues are not necessarily him as a player, but the the tactical uh, setup, the instructions that he's being given uh, to carry out. But in this game, he just wasn't much of a leader. We saw multiple times Christian Pulisic getting kind of in his ear, saying, you know, uh, I mean, we don't know exactly what he was saying, but from the looks of it, you know, hey, let's push, let's press, let's, you know, drop. I mean, just different things. And this is a 19-year-old kid talking to his captain. Now, Michael Bradley didn't exactly um, bathe himself in glory tonight, but he has to lead this team. He's the captain. He has got to be more vocal. At some point in this game, when he knew he was getting overwhelmed in the midfield, you've got to tell Darlington Nagby, you've got to tell Paul Ariola, drop back, help me out. Let's let Pulisic and Josie and, and, and Wood be our attack, and let's just control the middle of the field for a little while. But it never happened. And, and don't say that he was just following orders, that this is what Bruce told him to do, so he did it. This is the same Michael Bradley who essentially went to Jurgen Klinsmann and Columbus against Mexico and said, listen, this formation you have us playing is stupid, let's fix it. So where's the, where's the guts? Where are the cones now when your World Cup lives depend on it? Now, Paul Ariola honestly, was probably one of the bright spots on the field for the first half and was inexplicably subbed off. I, I mean, I don't understand why. The guy's, 
is hardworking, he's industrious, and honestly pretty creative. And when you're chasing two goals in a game, he is not the player to pull off. At that point, I think you have to pull off Josie, who honestly was not having a great... I mean, oh, okay, so none of the players were having a great game. We'll just blanket that statement across the board. Christian Pulisic is the only player who had a bright spot, and that was his goal early in the second half. But Josie didn't seem interested. He was kind of petulant throughout the night, um, and you can understand some frustration. He's he's trying to carry that front line. He's trying to link up play, and it's just not happening because there's no play to link up because there isn't a midfield. But at some point, you take off one of the strikers and you put another midfielder in there to help control the game. Because you have Christian Pulisic and you have another striker who can help combine with each other and hold that ball up and be creative. And then you can afford to bring a Paul Areola or a Darlington Nagby a little more into the offensive part of the game because you have the midfield locked down. But that just didn't happen. Now, we could harp on every single player, like I said, had a, had a terrible game. But we'll move on. The end of 90-some-odd minutes, the U.S. men's national team, for the first time in 32 years, has not qualified for the World Cup. And what is most infuriating about this is even with a loss, we had a prayer. All we needed was for Mexico and Costa Rica one and two in the group to lend us a little bit of a hand which, you know we've done on countless occasions for them <laughs> against Panama, St. Zussie scoring to keep Panama out of the World Cup and send Mexico there in the last cycle so it's the least they could do, right? Well, it all looked good both Costa Rica and Mexico take early leads and then it just falls apart you could tell Honduras Panama, they wanted it. That was this. That was the kind of do-or-die mentality, the never-say-never, never, we're going to grind for every second of this game kind of performances that you wished you could have seen from the U.S. Now, Panama obviously score, uh, actually don't score um, at a ghost goal, but it is given, and some will say that, well, if that's not given then that game is a tie. We at least make the playoff game against Australia, but this stuff happens. It's FIFA. It's, you know, without video assistant refereeing, then this stuff is just not going to... It's always going to exist. It's never going to be perfect. You can tell Ireland this um, before the you know, 2010 World Cup when Thierry Henry handles the ball in the box before... Uh, it's scored, and France go through at the expense of the Republic of Ireland. You can tell them how unfair it is, but it didn't change anything. They still didn't make that World Cup. Now, the only thing we can hope for, maybe, is if, that, if Panama does end up making it, that maybe they'll have the same kind of collapse that France did in the 20, uh, 2010 World Cup. But at the end of the day, we're not there. Honduras, Panama, they've got their chance. And it's because they wanted it more. They showed up. 
they fought tooth and nail to make sure it happened. And that was a cornerstone of the United States game for as long as I've been alive. And we just didn't see it. It's like they came into this game with a, with an arrogance that this was... The job was already done after Panama. And all we had to do was show up and then the World Cup would be given to us. And that's just not what happened. So we'll transition here. We could talk in circles all day about what went wrong and, and who was at fault and and let me say I guess in, in closing for this, this this portion that some will say well was the Bruce Arena era a good idea they'll look back at the Jurgen Klinsmann era and say well maybe he wasn't so bad but let's let's make something clear here First of all, it is both of their faults. Jurgen lost at home to Mexico, and this is how the hex works. You have to win your home games and then hope to get a couple of results away. But we went to the home of Dos Acero, we went to Columbus, the fortress, and we go out there and we play a, a back three, a back five, something we probably hadn't practiced more than once against Mexico. And we get crushed. And then we go down to Costa Rica and get crushed. To start our qualify, our hexagonal uh, campaign, yes, Jurgen Klinsmann is absolutely to blame. But so is Bruce Arena. He came in here with literally one job. And that is qualify the United States for the World Cup by any means necessary. And it all started great. A 6 nothing win against Honduras in which Pulisic kind of announced himself as, yes, I really am as good as everybody seems to think I am. But Bruce had his issues too. First off, U.S. soccer playing a home game in New York City against Costa Rica, which has one of the largest Costa Rican populations in the country. It's not a home game. You have to go and you have to play that game in a city like Orlando or Columbus or somewhere that is not going to give the opposition team some sort of competitive advantage based on crowd numbers. But Bruce also didn't do his part. We feel the teams of players who shouldn't have been on the roster. We we didn't trust the, the youth, the... The old, I guess the old guard is exactly what got us the result we had, but, you know, we didn't have the tools in place to win that game, and that has to fall on Bruce's shoulders. So, yes, it is Bruce's fault. He is to blame, but it's also Jurgen's fault. And then ultimately it has to be Sunil's fault. The president of U.S. Soccer brought both of these guys in with lofty expectations, and they failed. And that is a reflection of his failure as well. So here we go. What is next? What do we do about the failure to qualify for the World Cup? What, what happens now? Well, I think as this pod is evidence uh, and as 
countless others have been, the conversation needs to start. The conversation needs to be who should still be at U.S. soccer. You know, who, um, who should be coaching? Who should be the president? What players should still have a spot on the national team and who shouldn't? And then there's some bigger, more systemic questions. Why aren't we developing players at the rate of some other countries? We have a huge population. We have some of the best athletes in the world. Why can we not compete with some of these other European countries who are churning out world-class talent like it's nothing? Now, there's this excellent article on American Soccer Now um, by Brian Sharetta who talks about the missing generation in U.S. soccer. And to underline what I think um, everyone has obviously already uh, understood is that international competition is extremely important. And it should be known that the United States has failed to qualify for the last two Olympics. Now, the Olympics are played with under-23s with a couple of you know freebie players who can be brought in, uh, i.e. Neymar, Messi, so that their national teams can have a little bit of star power so people will watch the, you know, the Olympic soccer games and um, they can win something for their country. So, but for the most part, these games are under 23s. And it is imperative that the United States be there so that this generation can be uh, tested on the biggest stage against the best competition in the world. Because you're not going to the Olympics and playing Trinidad and Tobago. You're not going to the Olympics and playing Honduras. You're going to the Olympics and playing Brazil and Germany and Portugal and Spain. And that is the level that our young players need to be playing at. That's the level they need to be attaining to in order to make a difference on the full senior national team, to push the United States forward. And like I said, the last two, we haven't been there. And so Brian goes through this article and highlights the different generations of U.S. soccer and says, and he gives the names of the different players that these generations have produced. And I want to go through a few of them. And I want to see if you'll notice the differences in talent, in just sheer numbers. Um, so here we go. Here's in the 70s. We have players 1971, Brad Friedel. 1972, Brian McBride. 73, Craig Bearhalter, Claudio Reyna, Eddie Pope. 74, Eddie Lewis. 76, Pablo Mastroni. Then you've got 77, Ben Olsen, Jimmy Conrad, 78, Brian Cheen, 79, Carlos Bocanegra, Steve Chirundolo, Jay DeMeritt, Tim Howard, Nick Romando. Right there is almost a full national team's worth of unbelievable American talent. And that's the 70s. Then you get to the 80s. 1980, 1980 Taylor Twelman. 81, Edison but uh, Buttle, Brad Davis, Alan Gordon. 82, Landon Donovan, Demarcus Beasley, Kyle Beckerman, uh, Hercules Gomez, Aguchi Onyewu, Clarence Goodson. I mean, talk about a golden generation in that one. 83, you've got Clint Dempsey and Wanda Lafsky. 84, you've got Brad Guzan, Eddie Johnson, um, Luis Robles. 
Um, 85, Jeff Cameron, Benny Failhaber, Stu Holden, Sasha Kleschen, Brad Evans. 86, Maurice Adu, uh, Graham Zussi, Lee Wynn. Um, 87, you've got Alejandro Bedoya, Matt Beasler, Michael Bradley, uh, Dax McCarty. 88, Omar Gonzalez. 89, Josie, Jorge Viafania. And uh, that's the 80s. And here's where it falls off, the 90s. This, what should have been um, just another level of absolute um, like industry level churning out talent. But this was a, a dry spell for whatever reason. And this is, this is the age, this is the age group of people who didn't qualify for these Olympics. And we have a couple of names here, but not near as many as you'll have noticed from the 70s and 80s. These are people like Darlington Nagby, um, Breck Shea, probably the poster child for this missing generation, this unbelievably talented kid who just seemed to never live up to the potential that he had. Bill Hamid, Matt Hedges, Ethan Finley, uh, Greg Garza, Kellen Rowe, Giassi Zarda, Steve Birnbaum, Bobby Woods, Sebastian Legette, Ventura Alvarado, Perry Kitchen, Juan Agudelo. In the 93, you've got DeAndre Yedlin. And then 94, Jordan Morris. Now, those are names that we're familiar with because these are the guys who are just now getting into the national team, some of them. You know, some like Sebastian Legette had started out really well and then they get hurt and they're out for long periods of time. And then you have guys like Giassi Zardes who, who started really well with the national team. Looked like they were going to be a staple of the of the national team for years and years and now I mean LA Galaxy aren't even playing him at the striker position they're trying him at right back and you've got uh, goalkeepers like Bill Hamid who who really should be next in line to Tim Howard and Brad Guzan but are underperforming in the MLS and actually Bill Hamid just um, moved to uh, Denmark I believe um, or Holland one of the two uh, to finally get out of MLS and, and get into Europe to try and, and prove himself. So some of these guys, Bobby Wood and, and, and DeAndre Yedlin and Jordan Morris, yeah, they're going to be staples of the national team in the future, but these are the same guys who didn't qualify for for the Olympics, who didn't have that experience. And and to help to help highlight why this is so important, if you look at the starting 11 for the Trinidad and Tobago match, if you look at the age discrepancy between just the starting 11, you'll see this gap in here, this 90s gap of talent, of players that who knows what happened to them and, and where the rest of them uh, disappeared to. You've got Howard, 38. You've got uh, Beasler, 30. Omar Gonzalez, 29. Viafania, 28. Nagby, 27. Josie, 27. Dempsey, 34, um, who didn't start but came off the bench. Benny also came off the bench, um, 32. And then on the young end of things, I mean, obviously you've got Christian Pulisic at 19. But then you've got this, a couple from this list in the 90s of DeAndre Yedlin and Bobby Wood. And then Paul Areola, and that's pretty much it. So there's a gap here. You have those 70s and 80s players who 
honestly at the ends of their careers who should have been replaced in the national team a long time ago. I love Matt Beasler. I'm a sporting Kansas City fan. He is a great captain, and he has honestly been the best um, center back in this qualifying because he's the only one who doesn't make blatantly terrible howlers. And that's not saying much. That's a very low bar. To just be consistent is not what you want out of your center backs. You want them to dominate people. But then you're relying on people like Jorge Villafania, 28 years old, has only been in the national team for less than a year. And you're relying on him to be a left back. And who's behind him? Demarcus Beasley, who's as ancient as anybody on this list. And then you've got Bobby Wood and Josie Altidore up top. Both of them. I mean, Bobby Wood has proven time and again that he's a clutch striker. He scores in the big you know, moments, but... What good could it have done him to have been in those international competitions at a younger age? How much better would he be? So there's this massive gap in talent. There's this lost generation of players. And you have to think it's partially because they just didn't make it to those Olympic Games. That at the under-17 and under-20 levels, they failed to make the World Cups. Now, there is a bit of a bright spot with the current under-17s and current under-20s. Players who are pushing the boundaries of where the United States youth talent has ever been. Players like Weston McKinney, who are consistently starting in the Bundesliga. And not just for honestly bad teams but for Schalke a team that has all of the the talent and and money at its disposal to be uh, a top two top three even I mean winning the Bundesliga kind of team and he's 19 years old and obviously we all know what Christian Pulisic is doing at Dortmund scoring in the Champions League So, I mean, the future is bright. And there is a generation coming up of American talent that we have to think could exceed even some of those generations that I listed earlier. But it's evident that for whatever reason, there was a missing generation in there, and the national team has suffered as a result. So what do we do from here? Okay, what can we do to fix the problem? It's time to turn the page. Uh, Matt Doyle, in an excellent article for MLS.com, talks about this exact thing, being part of a turning the page. Um, U.S. soccer has got to say, Tim Howard, Demarcus Beasley, Clint Dempsey, thank you for your service. You are national team legends. You've done... Um, more than any other generation has ever done for U.S. soccer. Um, we'll get you those friendly testimonial games here and there where um, you're going to have your chance, maybe Clint, to, to eclipse Landon on the all-time scoring record, but um, you are no longer needed 
for competitive matches. Because at some point, the young kids have got to learn that you can't... That, I mean, that the buck has to stop with them. That they're responsible now. That they have to step up and succeed or fail on their own. And then... I mean, we have to we have to bleed some of these young kids, um, you know, some of these uh, younger guys in that starting eleven. I mentioned the Areolas, the Woods, Pulisic, Yedlin. I mean, these have to be your veterans. Now, some of them haven't been with the national team for very long, but the page has to turn. And then, as we've seen with this, this historical generation for Iceland. The focus needs to be on development. Now, every MLS team has a development academy, and then there are some who aren't associated with MLS teams, and that is what's helping the young national talent uh, do things that others before them have never done. The under-17s and the under-20s um, you know, winning... CONCACAF and then going into at least the quarterfinals of the World Cup is incredible. But it isn't enough. And there's still so many talented kids who never even get a shot because of the whole pay-to-play culture of American soccer. So the best of the best, they get scooped up by these MLS development academies and, and usually uh, those aren't you know, pay-to-play programs. But, I mean, that's just the the ones who are early developers, the ones who show that brilliance early and who are somewhat close to in, uh, MLS franchises. They have encatchment areas of a couple hundred miles around, um, you know, for example, Sporting Kansas City. So their encatchment area is some Iowa, Nebraska, um, obviously Missouri, Kansas, and then, you know, um, that's I mean that's pretty much it. So you got to think there are kids all over the South who aren't getting picked up because there isn't an MLS team anywhere near them. You got to think you know Louisiana and Mississippi, Alabama. None of them have MLS teams anywhere near them. You know Dallas being the closest and maybe Orlando after that. But who's who's getting those kids? These other development academies, these travel teams, these um, pay-to-play organizations that are not funded through U.S. soccer, who have to charge um, the kids' families exorbitant amounts of money just to exist. And when we get down to it, these rural um, locations, these, uh, these kids that live out in the middle of nowhere or even in the inner city who are living in impoverished circumstances, they obviously cannot afford those kinds of teams. And so we're losing talent because they can't afford to play the game. And something has to be done. Now, I'm not blaming the organizations who have to charge because um, they don't have help from U.S. soccer. I mean, it's it's capitalism. It's it's the it's the way things are. They're not bad organizations because they make the kids pay. They have to, or else they don't exist. The real bad guys are are U.S. soccer. I mean, it's been talked about wildly, but you know, there's this you know uh, kickback of of a couple hundred million dollars that 
you know, U.S. soccer made, and, and there's been a lot about, you know, maybe paying the women's team at least equal, if not better, wages than the men, because obviously uh, they can succeed on the international level, and the men's national team can't. But maybe if we kicked some of that money back to these pay-to-play organizations, then these impoverished kids could play the game. You know, and if you need an example, Clint Dempsey is the perfect example of this. This is a kid from from Nacogdoches, Texas, who's had to drive six hours to play for a, a pay-to-play program, um, a traveling team. He's a poor kid from the middle of nowhere. His parents had to work multiple jobs just to be able to help pay for this. But he was one of the few who got into that and then excelled. How many more kids out there uh, are, are, are out there who if U.S. soccer could help fund some of these teams, could get a chance to push themselves into the national team picture. I mean, we'll never know until the, the story changes, but something has got to. And as I, rest, I referenced Iceland earlier, Iceland, I mean, if you, if you want a pretty detailed discussion into what um, this incredible story that's happened in Iceland of them qualifying first for the Euros and then now for the World Cup... Uh, Men and Blazers, uh, Raj Bennett does an incredible documentary and a bunch of pods about the Icelandic system. And basically what it comes down to is, as a country, they decided we are going to be good at soccer. <laughs> so they built a bunch of indoor training facilities. They went out and they um, got coaches, not just from outside of Iceland, but they sent their own people to the best um, facilities throughout Europe to get their A licenses to coach international and, uh, and national soccer um, at the highest level and um, learn how to develop. And so this golden generation, if you want to call it that, of Icelandic players are the result of this investment by the country, by the Ministry of Sports or whatever it is they call it, taking money investing it in youth coaches and saying we are going to be successful and it's worked so this is my um, this is my plea for the eight of you who listen to this podcast and hopefully in the future more it doesn't take much to be a, a good coach in soccer all right U.S. soccer on their page has, um, at the very very low end of the of the tree of U.S. soccer coaching, is the F license. It's twenty five dollars. It's a two hour online um, course, and you can be certified as a U.S. soccer F license coach, which will help you coach the little kids. But it will give you exactly how U.S. soccer wants to develop kids at that age and how. You know, the basics of coaching soccer, uh, how to set up a field, how to properly hydrate kids, like all that kind of stuff, is $25. And you can work your way up, D, E, F, I mean, I mean uh, E, D, C, sorry. Um, you can work your way up. It costs money, it costs time, but if it's something you're passionate about, pursue it. We need coaches. I'm doing the F license myself. I'll probably move up the chain a little bit higher so that wherever I end up in life, if there's a youth team that needs somebody to volunteer as a coach, I can do it and I can be a good coach for those kids. 
I can get them on the right track and not just a lazy parent who will throw a ball out on the field and tell them to go kick it around. So if, if you want to be a part of the solution, go and get your license. Go out and help coach your kid's team or a youth group team, an upward soccer team, whatever it is. And then finally, we need a new coach, and we need a new president. Um, Sunil has been incredible uh, for U.S. soccer. He's done so much, but his time has come. It needs to be a fresh start for U.S. soccer after this. And, um, I mean, who knows if that'll happen. There are um, at least two others, Eric Wynalda and Steve Gans, who are running against him in February, but we'll see if uh, if it's enough to dethrone Sunil Gulati, but I, I personally I think it needs to happen. And as far as the coach is concerned, it was announced today that um, one of the assistants on the Bruce Arena, Steve um, uh, Sarkin, I'm going to guess, um, Steve Sarkin is taking over for the one game against Portugal um, because as of right now, um, there is no uh, additional um, friendly scheduled for the year. But uh, he's already on the staff. He'll, he'll maintain most of the rest of the staff um, that Bruce Arena had so that there isn't this massive turnover for one game. Um, and then this will allow U.S. soccer probably not until after the presidential elections in February to then announce who the next coach is going to be. And uh, I was going to take more time to talk about who I thought should do this, but this pod is going to run really long anyway. Um, so let me just say... I think the three that I really think could do um, a great job with U.S. soccer are Tab Ramos, who's the current under-20 national team coach and the youth technical director, basically did most of the technical director duties that Jurgen Klinsmann was titled with but didn't actually do. Um, He's got a defined system. He knows how he wants to play. He knows the youth in U.S. soccer, and he won't be afraid to play the young kids. So I think he would be a great addition. Next, Tata Martino. Um, This is a guy, he's currently the coach of Atlanta United, an expansion side that is now third seed in the the MLS Cup playoffs in their first season. Uh, They play electric, exciting soccer. Um, He's also been the national team coach of Paraguay and Argentina, most notably the Argentine team that went to the World Cup finals uh, in 2014 and lost um, heartbreakingly to Germany. Now, this is a man who uh, has experience. He's also coached at Barcelona um, and has ex- has a very defined style of play as well, which is something the U.S. has lacked, and plenty of experience, and I think would be a tremendous um, addition to U.S. soccer if we can get um, someone else in there to do a technical director role, which I think would be necessary in this case so that uh, they can help him understand the youth side of U.S. soccer a little bit better um, and have some oversight, which is something that Jurgen Klinsmann really lacked. And then lastly, um, there's a toss-up of, of, of MLS coaches who, who could probably do the job. A lot of people throw out Oscar Pereja um, down at uh, Dallas, but after um, probably one of the most epic collapses in MLS history um, that was FC Dallas this season and a lot of players coming out and saying basically they didn't want to play for him anymore. I'm not sure I'm excited about that option. Um, then there's uh, Kirk Vaney and Jason Christ and all the normal names that get thrown around from the MLS. But the one that really stands out to me is Peter Vermees, the current coach and technical director of Sporting Kansas City. Um, he has been 
in charge of sporting through its most successful, uh, most consistent times in MLS. Um, they've won uh, four Open Cups. They've won um, you know, a couple of MLS Cups, and they've been in the playoffs for eight straight years. And he just seems like the kind of coach who would uh, kind of give um, U.S. soccer the kick in the pants that it needs. That means he'd have to leave sporting Kansas City, which hurts me, but um, what is good for U.S. soccer is good for the MLS, and ultimately I think um, it would be a, a more successful um, time for the U- U.S. soccer um, as a result. Uh, I think it's worth it. So those are my three that I think um, could be the next in line for the U.S. job. Watch it now be someone like Sam Allardyce. God help us all. Um, but I think those are the three serious options that whoever the next president is needs to be looking at. So let me know if you agree, disagree, and uh, let's have a little discussion next week if we learn any more news. Um, and as soon as we do have any sort of confirmation um, on a full-time replacement coach or a new president or any big developments over the next few months, we will talk about it. So... Um, to finish off this segment, um, I wanted to just give a quick um, look at what I think the national team future will be um, you know, for the 2022 World Cup if we qualify for it. Um, again, I've taken some of this from um, Matt Doyle's MLS.com article about it, um, and I'll throw my few Um, in there as well. Um, He has, starting at goalkeeper, Bill Hamid. I think um, we should probably be giving Ethan Horvath um, a a look there because he is um, by far uh, the most consistent youth um, national team goalkeeper. He's at Club Bruges in in Belgium. Um, He's fought for a starting role there. He's got it. And uh, he seems to be performing very well. Bill Hamid has not always been very consistent in the MLS, and we'll have to wait and see what he does abroad as well. Next, moving out to right back, no surprise here, DeAndre Yedlin. I absolutely agree. He's much better than he was when he started with the national team, and um, he's only, only going to get better. Sorry about that. My mic uh, pop filter fell. Um, he's only going to get better. And then out at left back, Uh, Brandon Vincent um, with the Chicago Fire. Um, Given the shortage of outside backs the the national team um, has, uh, I mean, Brandon Vincent seems like a a good young player. I can't honestly say I know much about him, so I'm not going to challenge this one too much. Starting at center back, he has Jeff Cameron and Matt Miazga. Now, uh, honestly, I mean, Jeff Cameron is, is by that point going to be one of the old guard. And, uh, I mean, it would be good to have... Um, somebody with some experience. Uh, you got to think in the qualifying, we're going to have to have um, someone like Jeff Cameron in there or else we're going to get smoked because center back is not really uh, a very deep option right now. But uh, I have to think that if Brooks is still healthy and playing at a good level, he's going to be in there. Um, and then Matt Miazga, you never know, um, but there's a plethora of young center backs coming up, like Cameron Carter-Vickers at Tottenham as well. Um, 
but I'd be okay with this back two, or this back four, I guess. Then you've got Jonathan Gonzalez and Weston McKinney in the middle of the field. Um, Jonathan Gonzalez, um, young Mexican-American, um, who knows if he'll end up playing for the U.S. national team. I know both Mexico and the U.S. are trying to get him cap-tied. Again, pop filter fell. Um, so we'll see here whether or not he ends up for the U.S. or not. Weston McKinney, I think, is a lock. Uh, as long as he continues to perform, I think he is the feature of um, our midfield. And then you've got Kellen Rowe, Paul Ariola out wide. Couldn't agree more. I thought Kellen Rowe kind of got the shaft during the Gold Cup. I thought he performed very well. He was energetic. He was just, uh, creative and incisive. And for whatever reason, got sent home after the group stages. And I think he deserves another call-in and another opportunity to show that he could uh, play the wide positions for the United States. Paul Ariola, like I said earlier on, um, has been kind of a bright spot for the national team over the last couple of months. He's industrious, he works hard, and he's got just an unbelievable first touch. Um, and then right in the middle of all this is Christian Pulisic. Honestly, um, there is absolutely no argument against this. He will be in this uh, position pending some catastrophic um, injury or dip in form. Uh, Christian Pulisic looks like he's going to be pulling the strings for the United States for years to come. And then up top, Bobby Wood. Um, maybe Josh Sargent by that point. Hopefully he's at least in the national team picture and he's gotten some chances. Um, Jordan Morris could also be in this position. Uh, but Bobby Wood is a is a an option there. He's not my favorite option, um, at least not on his own as a hold-up kind of striker. But, um, you know, Right now, we don't really have any other options, and I don't think Josie um, will be at the next World Cup if we make it. Um, I think he'll get a few more uh, games in a national team shirt, but um, if he wouldn't, I wouldn't cry about it. So there you go. There's my uh, look at maybe the future of the national team. Um, some notable um, additions who, who I think I would love to see in a national team uniform over the coming years. Um, people like Josh Sargent, Andrew Carlton, um, you know, hopefully Jonathan Gonzalez will uh, be capped tied to the United States. Um, but we'll see. You know, I'd love to see Cameron Carter-Vickers get another run out. Um, hopefully people like Lyndon Gooch don't get uh, forgotten in England. And, um, you know, then we'll see maybe if some of these guys who have gone to Germany uh, continue to impress. So that's the end of the U.S. segment. Stay tuned. We'll sign off and let you know about some of the uh, new stuff coming up, including um, the dirty, um, well, the studs up challenge of the week. Um, but it's going to be a little dirty, too. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll finish out the show with a bang. All right. Well, I know this has been a long pod for you guys. There's been so much to talk about, so much to catch up on in eight some odd weeks of, of soccer around the world. And of course, the massive storylines of the U.S. Um, and uh, we had to talk about it. So it's a long pod. Most of them won't be this long, but I can't always guarantee that. But to finish up the show, uh, we've got our uh, studs up um, red card challenge of the week. And that's going out to um, one um, Anthony Precourt, owner of Columbus Crew. We may have talked about this earlier in the pod a little bit, but uh, wants to move the Columbus Crew to Austin, Texas, 
Um, one of the founding um, teams in MLS um, is the crew. Uh, they had the first soccer-specific stadium in the country. A loyal fan base, a successful club. They were just in MLS Cup Finals not too long ago, um, I believe losing to Portland. Um, but this is just a, a crappy move. This is a guy who took over. He obviously, from the beginning, planned on moving them to Texas. And um, not only that, not only is this not only is this bad enough, not only are you taking a club away from the city, which has worked, you know, just so well for, um, you know, MK Dons and AFC Wimbledon, um, but you're, you're going to do that to a fan base that is as loyal and, um, and, uh, and as passionate as any other, and not to mention the national team aspects of this as well. Columbus is a stronghold for us. It's the kind of stadium you go to when you need a result unless you're Jurgen Klinsmann. And um, we're going to rip their franchise away from them. So hashtag save the crew. Um, go online. See what you can do to stop this. It's, it's just idiotic. Um, but the worst part is they've just been announced that they're not going to refund 2018 season tickets um, for people who already bought them, those who are angry and don't want to be a part of their, um, you know, this 2018 season, whether they'll be in Columbus for another season or if they're going to go straight to Texas, they're not getting refunded that money. And that's just a terribly crappy thing to do um, to people. So uh, studs up, two foot, straight to the kneecap for you, Anthony Precourt. Um, screw you, and uh, I hope that the voices of fan, MLS soccer fans, of national team fans, of owners in the MLS, Don Garber, somebody, um, you know, will stop you from ruining um, this this club, this franchise, this fan base. So that is our um, studs up tackle of the week. Um, go to savethecrew.com see what you can do to stop this because as an MLS fan myself if this were to ever happen to Sporting KC I would lose my mind and I can only imagine what they're going through so um, yeah that is the show I, like I said I'm sorry it's a long one but we've had a lot to talk about and honestly I just kind of get all this stuff pent up I don't have anybody to, to talk soccer to my wife um, it, bless her heart um, she tries to keep up with it but uh, um I just there's just so much, so I'm glad you you and I we can have these conversations together and and let's keep them going. So um, lastly, I have to plug um, rate review the show on iTunes. Leave us a comment, um, you know, five star rating. That helps us get pushed to the top of the charts. That helps make us more visible to other fans. Um, you know, hey, reach out on Twitter. Um, you know, show us some love out there. And uh, if you have somebody who who may be interested in hearing um, some more information about any of the topics that we've we've talked about today, whether they're an MLS fan or uh, they're big into the Premier League, or they just want to hear someone's take on the national team um, and the drama that's gone on there. Um, you know, point them towards the pod. Um, and as always, let us know what you want to hear. Uh, ask questions. Um, hopefully in the future, um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty small outfit here. Uh, just me and, and producer Josh Peters. Um, 
but maybe in the future we can expand this out and uh, maybe start having visitors on the show as well. Um, but we're only going to do that if we can get the popularity of this show going up. So um, uh, let us show some love, leave reviews, do your work. You guys are the best. We still have to come up with some cute nickname for you guys. If you have any ideas on that, hit me up on Twitter. Um, I want to call you the little ramblers or something like that, but that sounds a little weird. So, yeah, just let us know. Um, It's been a pleasure, as always. Um, So, all I've got left to say is, remember, take every challenge, studs up, especially if you ever meet Anthony Precourt. Later.